what I'm going to do while we're continuing with this is is uh, to go ahead and introduce Kathy as well. Um, Kathy's just get, is is not just Kathy's going to share for a bit. Not no just about that, and uh, and then Chris will come up and share. Um, and Kathy uh, is is an amazing woman of God in her own right. She happens to be married to an amazing man of God, but she's an amazing woman of God in her own right. And over the years, Kathy, we have really, really grown to appreciate you and love you a bunch. So really, so thank you. Um, you're a blessing to us. And would you just welcome Kathy Valentin? Yeah. Wow, thank you. It's awesome to be back here again. You guys kind of move around a little bit. I think the last time I was probably here was probably about three years ago and you were in a different location. And it looks like you guys need a new location again. Or double services or... You guys didn't do the uhu for double services. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame you. When we went to three services in the morning, I'm like... Oh my goodness, we need a new building. So that's, we're praying into a new building too. So, but it's nice to be back almost in my home, uh, hometown. I was raised in Fremont. So I know it's pretty close, huh? Anybody from Fremont here? Ah, American high school. I was the second, the second, actually the first full graduating class from American high school. Yeah, so and now I'm sure it's changed a lot. So I just had something that I saw in worship that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, and I saw, I saw this, it was like this forest, it was really green, and this leaf that kind of went into another leaf. And I began to see a drop of water that was on the leaf. And it didn't look like it was much, and I began to watch it, and it fell from one leaf to another until it hung out over a, a pond. It was kind of the still pond. And as I began to watch the pee, the drop of water, I thought, this, this is so insignificant. It's, it doesn't amount to anything. How could it do much of anything? And as I began to watch, all of a sudden the drop fell into the pond. And the effects of that were amazing because this little drop of water, and, and this isn't anything that you guys don't already know, but I felt like I was just supposed to encourage you with it. The little drop of water had such an effect on the larger pond that it was seen from one side of the shore to the other side of the shore because of the ripple effect that it had. And I began to think... Um, began to think about the journey that Chris and I have been on from Weaverville to Bethel. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in Bethel, but Bethel was that was like that little tiny drop, something that was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Although if you talk to Pastor Bill, he would say that Weaverville is the center of the universe. That was so true because we believe that Weaverville some place that was so small and insignificant that couldn't reach or touch anything, um, we thought, no, we can make a change. And I just began to just began to um, ponder about that and thought, you know, 
what was not seen at first, because this little drop that was on this leaf was seen by nobody except for me. And as it began to fall into the water, all of a sudden things changed and what was not seen became seen. And I felt like the Lord was saying that each one of you guys are that little drop. And there's so many of you that are sitting here thinking, I never make a difference. I, I, I never make a difference at work. I, what can I, what can I do in my school? How can I change that? How can I change my, my city or my environment? And you think anything that I ever try to do never goes seen. But I want to tell you that that's, that's really a lie from the enemy because he tries to mask us and he tries to hide us. But the Lord is saying arise and shine because he's put you strategically right where you're supposed to be right now. And so many of us are always trying to be somewhere else. And you know, I thought when we were in Weaverville, it was this, it was, you know, 3,200 people. You could almost fit everybody in the palm of two hands. There wasn't a whole lot there, but God was doing something there and he was developing us and he was shaping us and molding us. He was testing us. He was forging us, but more, more so he was strengthening us. He was strengthening us inside to prepare us for what was going to happen. I remember, I remember, um, one night Chris and I were in just getting ready to go to sleep and he said, you know what? one of my greatest dreams are. I thought, no, what, what is it? And he goes, one of my biggest desires is to be able to speak at Bethel church on a Sunday night. (laughs) That wasn't that long ago. We've been at Bethel for what? 16, 17 years, but it was the year before we came to Bethel that that was on Chris's bucket list. If I could only preach at Bethel Church on a Sunday night, that little drop that was hidden away in Weaverville that hit a pond, that began a ripple effect, that really now is changing nations, was seen by nobody except for maybe the guys that were all greasy and grimy and would come into our parts store. To standing before presidents and ambassadors and governors. And I had the privilege of hearing him say all the time, who am I? Who am I? How could I ever make a difference? And I just, I just began to hear that when I walked into the room, um, well, during worship tonight. I just heard people saying, how can I make a difference? Who am I? Who am I? And the Lord's saying, you guys are so awesome and you're so seen. And even if you don't think you have what it takes to do to get to your bucket list, go with what you got because God is always multiplying. And he takes what you have and he get put, He mixes it with what he has. And it, there's a beautiful outcome. There is something that's, that's just really changed and transformed inside of you. And so... You know, no one is insignificant in here. No matter how many times the enemy says you are insignificant, it's a lie. Everyone is so significant. You just have to believe the truth. It's a choice. It's a choice. And nobody can force feed you. But it's something that you have to do yourself. Doesn't make a difference what you think you have to give. It doesn't matter if you have a whole lot or not very much. 
The thing that matters is that you give. That you give of yourself. You give of your time. You give of your finances. You give of your talents. Just don't hold on to them. When we hold on to them, that's all we have is what we've held on to. But when you take what God's given to each one of you and you give it away, there's an endless opportunities that are available to us because he's our dad and he loves us so much. Amen. Wanted to come up for two reasons. One, to let you know that if you want to listen to tonight's message, it will be on our podcast uh, on our website, blazingfire.org. So you can go and later on listen to that for free. And um, the other reason I wanted to come up is because I wanted to say, let's give it up for Chris Valentin. <laughs> oh, you are, you are going to use that? Thank you very much. So good to be back. That was such a great word. I'm a drip. You're a drip. <laughs> You're just a bunch of drips in a pond. And when you drip together, then you become a pond. And then, you know, it's just like, it's a good word. Could I have a student stand up? I'm so proud to have them with me. Bless them. Thank you so much for coming. Love these guys. I have a minister to you later on, um, probably tonight. And... Uh, I'm very excited to have them here. And their school's out, so they're coming on their own. It's not part of school. They just wanted to come, so they're, that's awesome. Yeah, they're good. So, uh, what, yeah. <laughs> Team Valentin. There it is right there. We're just a bunch of drips together. We're gonna make a pond and then whatever she said. <laughs> Take care of the fishes in the deep blue sea and, Joy for you and me. There it is, right there. The song just came right to me. You see that? Woo, shush. So, poet. I'm a songwriter. Wow. Um, we have product tonight. I don't know, actually know how you're going to get it, but it's up there behind the piano. I have to say, I've never had my product on display. I should just be standing behind it like an infomercial through the whole. And here's all the things we have right here. Kind of cool. I might, I might demand they do that from now on where I travel. But uh, a couple of things that I, I have um, that, that are uh, new since I've been here, at least. This is called Fashion to Reign, Empowering Women to Fulfill Their Divine Destiny. Uh, yeah, that was not too good, you guys. This point I was going to make is the book's much better than your applause. Anyway. Um, this is actually about women being powerful. And... Uh, Good word right there. Making friends with the women and alienating the men. It's all right. You're all a bunch of drips. And when God created man, he created them both male and female, and he empowered them both to be fruitful, multiply, and to subdue the earth. And he gave them power over the fish of the sea. I don't really know how you take authority over fish, but... The birds of the air over the cattle and every and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Ladies, isn't it cool that you have power over creeps? It's right there in Genesis 1. Power over creeps, right from the very beginning. Some of you needed to know that way before you got married. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a joke. That was a little joke. 
Um, for people who don't follow me, my sense of humor is a little warped <laughs> to test your character. Anyway, um, but this is, a, this is a book about empowering women, and I, I believe that um, women are equally powerful and distinctly different. And I think they can do anything a man can do, they just do it differently. And so um, if you don't believe that, you should read this book, and then you'll have something to argue about. <laughs> Would somebody like this book? Maybe a, a, a woman, your husband's here, and he's really oppressing you. <laughs> Come give this book away to somebody. Look for a woman who looks really oppressed and give it to her. She doesn't look oppressed. She looks happy. Looks like she's happily married. You give it a bad discernment. I'll let you try again with this one, okay? Um, this is called the School of the Prophets: Advanced Training for Prophetic Ministry. And years ago, I wrote a, a book called Basic Training for the Prophetic Ministry, and we use it in our school. And then we started a school of the prophets. It's actually a school that we do for prophets and prophetesses, and for people who equip prophetic people. And uh, we've been doing that for I think around ten years. This year it'll be at the Mission Church in Vacaville in August. You can get on our website and check that out. Um, but so, and I have notes for years, and um, so I turned the notes for that school into a book. I think it's a really good book. It's not a book of prophecy. It's a book for prophets and prophetesses, prophetesses, whew, for women who prophesy and are prophetesses. <laughs> and uh, it's actually, I think it's a really good book. It's it begins with my story. People uh, ask all, often, you know, how did you come into your, your, your gift and how, how, do, how do people relate to you on your team? So that's the first couple of chapters. Um, is there any false prophets in here? <laughs> Would anybody like this book? Okay, come on, try again. Okay, give it to the most prophetic person in the room. <laughs> Second most. <laughs> you did good. You're a good book giver aware. <laughs> well, grab a hand and we're going to pray. If, you, uh, if you're holding hands with someone you like to date, just squeeze their hand. If it's a yes, just squeeze back. Three, I didn't tell Kathy this, but three people came up to me this last week our, while our students were graduating and said, we squeezed each other's hand, we dated, and now we're, we're either, two of them were engaged, one was married. So, you laugh, but you might be holding hands with the man or woman of your dreams. So Lord, I bless these people right now. Let them be fruitful and multiply after they get married. And we pray, God, that you would bless the word tonight and we'd have fun and learn and grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight about becoming a covenant people. And, um, you know, the, the church wasn't born in a, in a conference. Contrary to popular opinion, I speak in conferences and I, I, I love them, 
But there are people that go from conference to conference. They're like conference junkies. And, the, and they never put down any roots and wonder why nothing ever grows. And um, so tonight, I want to talk to you about covenant. You know, Jesus, when Jesus at the Last Supper, um, you know, Jesus gave the guys bread and said, this is my body. And then he broke the bread. He said, it's broken for you. And then he took the wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. And the church was born in a covenant. When Jesus, you know, when, when um, Adam was looking for a helpmate, it says that God put Adam to sleep after he looked through all the, the creatures that God had made. He put Adam to sleep and he took the rib from Adam. The word rib is actually in the Hebrew is actually the word side chamber. He took the rib from Adam and he fashioned out of the rib a woman. How many know he made Adam from dirt? <laughs> so just to be clear, she was a second generation creation created from more sophisticated material. <laughs> and it says that God formed Adam, but he fashioned. You look it up in the Hebrew, it's two different, completely different words. And when Adam got up, he, he woke up and he saw Eve. He said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken, listen to this, out of the man. How many know that the woman was once in the man? When Adam was created, the woman was in the man. And when God put Adam to sleep, he took the woman out of the man. So, men, you cannot get in touch with your feminine side without getting married because the feminine side was taken out of you. <laughs> and actually, that's true. Because the woman was made the word corresponding to. It says God would find someone corresponding to man. The word corresponding means, the, the word corresponding means opposite of. And so he took, he took the woman out of the man, and the woman was taken out of his side. When Jesus was on the cross, oh, let me just finish this part. And so Adam said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, how many know that that was a prophecy because Adam didn't have a mother or father? Adam only had God. So he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And how many of you understand that God never counts a woman in the crowd after that? So there's 5,000 men. There was 3,000 men. Why? Because God said the two shall be one. God said it takes two to make one. And by the way, if you're supposed to be single your whole life, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 that it takes a gift from God. The word gift is the word charisma, same word supernatural gift. To be single all your life, the rest of your life, it takes a supernatural gift because you were created to, to connect with the opposite sex, to be married. When Jesus was on the cross, this, he, he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? How many know that's what Adam said? That a man shall leave his father and cleave to his wife. And the soldiers pierced him in his side and blood and water came out of his side. How many know that Adam's bride came from his side and Jesus' bride came from his side? And he had to leave his father to cleave to his wife so that two could become one flesh. And so we were not born 
in a, in a, in a conference or a convention. We were born in a covenant. We were born by the blood and by the water. And um, we, we have, all of us, if you were alive on the planet today, in America or Europe, you were born into a cohabiting culture. I didn't say everyone cohabits. I said we, were born, we, we have become a cohabiting culture. When my, my grandparents and your grandparents were young, in fact, my mother got pregnant out of wedlock when she was uh, 17. My grandparents, who were not believers, they disowned her because it was shameful to be pregnant out of wedlock. Now, I'm not saying that's the right response. I'm simply saying that there was a sense of morality that covenant that, that children should be born out of covenant. And in fact, the Lord actually created, right in, right in creation, he created covenant in that he created a woman with a hymen so that the first time she has intercourse, the blood would break and the covenant would be made before children are conceived. Because the idea was that children were to be born out of covenant. Not outside of covenant, out of covenant. Selah. Some of you are like, whoa, that's a whole new idea. That's how far we are from covenant. We're so far from covenant that that's a new concept. Most people have never heard that. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Well, how could that be? Well, that's what God designed. God designed covenant. Was Scientists have found no reason for a hymen. But God knew that he wanted children to be born out of covenant, so he provided the blood. So the covenant, covenant could be made before the children were conceived. But we live in a cohabiting culture where, where people live together They'll have four children, five children. You'll say, why don't you get married? And they're like, oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. Like, if it's just a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? <laughs> you know why you don't sign it? Because marriage says, I'm in this. I've come to die for you. In fact, Paul says to husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a little, uh, Larry, said we're not, Larry Randolph said we're not chasing rabbits anymore. He said, this is the side dishes of the main meal. So here's a side dish. It seems funny to me in Ephesians 5 where it says, submit yourselves to one another. The next verse says, wives submit to your husbands as unto Christ. The next verse says, husbands love your wives. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And he goes on to tell husbands that they are to die for their wives. It's so funny that we shout, wives submit and whisper, husbands die. It's pretty easy to submit to a dead person. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we, and, and we know that we're supposed to have some sort of covenant, so when we get married, we say, almost every, every wedding I've ever done, people say, for better, for worse, somewhere, in the, in the, even though they write their own vows, someplace in the vows is, for better, for worse, for richer, poorer, and sickness and health, until... That's to its part. And they're smiling. So I just said, I'm, I'm dying. Do you understand that marriage is, a death, is, a, is a, a, a death march to a life camp? You know, the only way you can have a good marriage is to die? Dead people have great marriages. Live people, they have troubles. So when you come to, when you, come to, when you marry, you, you say, I'm, I'm willing to give up my life so that you can have life. And what makes it work is that both partners do that. But cohabiting says this, I'm in it for what I can get out of it. I'm in this for what I can get out of it. And I don't want to 
I don't want to give you a certificate that says, I'll be with you forever, because I use the fear of abandonment to get you to do what I want. I actually use the fear that I could leave you to get you to do what I want. So you live in a constant state of he could leave, she could leave at any minute, because I never made a commitment I'd be here forever. I've made a commitment I'll be here as long as you bless me. And to, in my mind, that's the Judas spirit. <laughs> Because Jesus kept telling the, the disciples, you know, one of you will betray me for three and a half years. In the last six months, he told them several times, one of you will betray me. On the night, in fact, you know, we call it the Last Supper. Actually, the Bible calls it on the night he was betrayed. We, we made it prettier. Oh, it was the Last Supper. Why were they all standing on one side of the table? Anyway, I've always wondered that. Like, why didn't they sit on both sides of the table? Some of you are still like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You've seen the painting. But the Bible actually calls the night, the night in which he was betrayed. Does not call it the Last Supper. And Jesus has all his disciples together, and he said, again, what he's been saying many times. One of you will betray me. And Peter leans over to John, who according to John... <laughs> which is questionable. He's leaning on Jesus' chest. And Peter says to John, ask him if it's me. And you'll notice that John does not ask him if it's Peter. He asks him, Lord, is it me? And then Jesus makes this statement, let's make a covenant. He begins to make a covenant with him, and Judas says, time for me to leave. You know why? How did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. See, the Judas spirit always wants intimacy without covenant. I want the benefits of the covenant without the responsibility or the pain. Because I've come here for what I can get. That's why I don't sign a paper. And the reason why there's people offended in here is because you come out of a culture that doesn't understand covenant. And so you hear about it and you're like, oh, well, I'm offended. You can, but you just need to read the Bible because I'm just telling you what happened in the Bible. So, when we have a cohabiting culture in, in, in church, too, we just come to get. I'm, on, I'm here for what I can get. Hey, can you help in the nursery? Oh, no, no, listen. <laughs> no, no, we pay you to do that. You, you're one pastor, you do everything <laughs> funerals. Weddings and crisis. And by the way, a crisis is, I could, be, I could have a bad marriage for 30 years, but the day I decide to change, my pastor better be there at 3 o'clock in the morning. Or... <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people, you know, they don't know anything about Christ, so their crisis is their Christ. <laughs> how many of you know that if you only seek God when you have a crisis, how many of you know if you only seek Christ when you have a crisis, that God's good enough to let you stay in one? I don't know why my whole life's a trial. I do. <laughs> the only time you seek the Lord is when you're in trouble, so you're always in trouble. Because <laughs> when you live in blessing, you build a calf. I'm none of you people. I'm talking about other people that didn't come now. <laughs> people that follow us, they're all covenant people who know all this stuff. 
I'm just letting you know those people out there. And we don't struggle with this because we are Christians. I wrote this on Facebook. No, this is about six months ago. It's it pretty. I had good good response. Don't marry the person you fall in love with. A fall is an accident, not an act of your will. If you fall once, chances are you'll fall again for someone else. A great marriage is never an accident. It's a covenantal choice that two people make with each other for life. It's only in the soil of this garden that true love can truly take root in the hearts of its companions. If you do fall in love, you better make sure you make a covenant to grow in love because what began as an accident needs to be done on purpose. You were like, I fell in love. It's like, oh, well, if you fell once, you could fall again. I understand it's like love at first sight. There's even, you know, um, there's even stories in the Bible where this guy saw that guy and immediately he loved her. But how many know that what started as an accident needs to grow in covenant? Because here's the challenge. You won't always have those butterflies. Next month, will be in July will be our 40th year of marriage. And we're... Very few people like wake up like we do, just with stars in our eyes every day. <laughs> like, what makes a great marriage? That you love when you don't feel like it. That you serve when it's not convenient. That you suffer when they do. That's what it means. That's like, how do I have a great marriage? You do when you feel awesome. Yeah. Okay, you know how you act? Yeah. When you don't feel awesome, act the same, and you'll have a great marriage. That's the truth. That's what it means to be in covenant. It means I do the right thing no matter how I feel because I'm not called a feeler. I'm called a, I'm not, I, don't call, I don't live by feel. I live by faith. Hmm. It, I'm starting serious, and I'll get better when we move on. <laughs> all right? Some of you are like, he's not being funny tonight. I do, I do, I, I, you are sensing something, uh, probably many of you who follow me a lot, you, you are sensing I'm out of my normal mode a little bit because I am deeply concerned about what I see as I travel. But I, feel, I, I do feel deep in my spirit that, that we need to move back to a covenant relationship. And, and I, although I celebrate people gathering, and you know, I, get, I have the opportunity to speak to thousands all over the world, in, you know, oftentimes conferences of many thousands. And it, I can't say I don't like it. I love it. I, I'm deeply concerned that that, that, becomes, the, that becomes the focus point of, of people's lives. It's like we go from, con- oh, there's another conference in two more months. It's, we're going to get our shot there. And I'm like, well, how many of you know that the wedding is not the marriage? <laughs> it's funny to me that people will spend months planning their, their, their wedding and spend thousands of dollars on a wedding and not spend 10 minutes on the marriage. It's become our culture like, let's take eight months to plan the wedding and, and two hours to plan the marriage. And the problem is, is that people think the marriage, I mean the wedding is the marriage. People think the conference is the covenant. They think the gathering is the church. And I'm like, well, it's nice to have a wedding, but the wedding is not, do you know what I'm saying? 
the wedding is not the marriage. And I'm not, you know, you obviously know I'm not saying don't have weddings. I'm not saying don't spend months on weddings. I'm not saying don't spend money on weddings. I'm, it's a metaphor. Are you with me? I'm not saying don't have great conferences. I'm not saying, what would I be here for? <laughs> I'm saying let this be the foundation, not the, not the finish. This is, this is you know, the, the wedding is the beginning. It's not the end. And so, um, so I, I, am, uh, I, I am deeply concerned about what I see as I travel and I, I want to see that reversed. I want to see people in covenant. I want to see people love beyond convenience. I want to pe- see people serve till it hurts. I want to see people suffer together. You know, you, if you you can't, unless you weep with those who weep, you can't rejoice with those who rejoice. So it's like you know, we we have a very joy centered movement. If you're a part of our movement, you know that. You know, Georgian Banoff is like he's a mascot. <laughs> I will sing an ending song till I save my soul. He sings that song again. I'm all slapping. We're both going to suffer together. Kind of the theme song of something. I, I, I mean, you know, joy. We, we, we have such a, a celebratory and joyful culture. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And I'll tell you, you know, coming... Out of the Pentecostal movement, I'm not. I'm I'm happy for our roots, but you know, like, like you, a good service depended on how many people were weeping. So I'm like, I'm glad to leave that behind. You know, it's like depression is. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The kingdom of God is not eat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy, not depression. But there is, there is a piece of love that love suffers long and that there's something about being with people through their pain that's a part of covenant, isn't it? So why don't you turn to Ruth, the book of Ruth. And I want to just, just begin this journey with you. Tell you a little bit about my story and our story. You could, it's in uh, chapter 1, and we're going to start from verse 15. First, I'm going to tell you just a little bit of the story, because um, well, obviously we don't have time to read the four chapters of Ruth. Ruth is, uh, <laughs> well, we could. We could go as long as we want. Preach the <laughs> eternal gospel. <laughs> Preach the lights go out in Georgia. Uh, um, so Ruth is a story about, um, about Naomi and her husband, and they... Uh, they have two sons, and they move. There's a famine in, in Judah, and so they move to the land of Moab. And while they're there, they, their two sons marry two Moabite daughters, uh, daughter-in-laws. And so one of them is uh, named Ruth, thus the name of the book. And so while they're there, while they're in Moab, Naomi's husband dies. And ten years later, the two boys die. Her two sons die, leaving her with two daughter-in-laws. So the two daughter-in-laws, and, and by this time, Naomi's old, and the daughter-in-laws, by law, are to take care of their, of their um, old mother-in-law. So they take her back to Judah, and she tells the two girls, Hey, you're free from the law 
that you have to take care of me. I free you. Go back to Moab. Go back to your land. Go back, you know, find a husband. And they're like, no, no, we want to stay with you. And she goes, listen, if I, if I got married again right now and got, and got pregnant tomorrow, you guys would not be able to wait for these sons. Go back to Moab and start your life over. I free you from the law of responsibility to me. And so one of the, the girls goes back, and now we pick up the story. So one goes back to Moab, and verse 15, Then she said, speaking of Naomi, is talking to Ruth. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Verse 16, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Someone needs to write a song about that. <laughs> your people shall be my people, your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts me and you. And when she saw, when Naomi saw that, that Ruth was determined to stay with her, she said no more to her. You know... Um, well, let me just go on. So the story goes on, and Ruth stays with Naomi. Now, that's interesting because everybody, every place I go, people all over the world, they're trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. If you did a conference in any city and you advertise, when you come to this conference, at the end of this conference, you're going to know why you were born. I guarantee you, you'd pack out the biggest stadiums in the world. Because everybody, everywhere, even atheists, are trying to figure out what purpose they have. Now think about that. That's a little incongruent with logic. If you're an atheist and you're trying to figure out what purpose, what's your purpose? Remember, you didn't have one. You were a big burp and then a bang. You were an amoeba that crawled out of the water and became you. You were once a drip, but now you are you. And I used to teach this. I used to teach that after finding God, that one of the most important things that you could do in life was figure out what you were called to do. I don't believe that anymore. I, think, I believe that it's important that you know what you're called to do and who you're called to be. But I think the second most important thing you can do in, in, the, in life is figure out who you're supposed to be with. Because I don't think you can figure out what you're supposed to do till you figure out who you're supposed to be with. See, I believe you can have the hands of Jerry Rice, but if you're not connected to the arm, you don't have a purpose. Because your purpose is directly related, not indirectly related, directly related to who you're connected with. I'm right about that. So people are like, what am I supposed to do? And like Ruth, Ruth is, Ruth is, I'm sorry, like Naomi, Naomi's telling Ruth, go, go, find your destiny, find your purpose, you know, go get married again, go. And Ruth's all, no, I want to be with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. What you do, I'll do. Your God shall be my God. And may death be the only th- thing that separates me and you. 
And she tells Naomi, I don't care about my destiny. I care about you. And she stays with Naomi. And she, this woman, she has no fame. She has no fortune. She's, she's a broke widow who actually owes money. Her husband ha- evidently had a loan on their previous property in Judah. And she's actually, and, and in those days, if you didn't, there was no such thing. Uh, I mean, there, there was such thing as debtor's prison. So if you owed money on a, on a piece of property, literally you were collateral for that property. You as a person were collateral for that property. And so they are literally, Naomi and Ruth are literally collateral slaves to the person who owns the, the note on that property. She has nothing. And Naomi and Ruth says to her, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your God shall be my God and may death be the only thing that separates me and you. And she goes on to live with Naomi, Ruth does. And they're hungry, they're starving. And so in the Old Testament, in the agricultural age, they would, the farmers would by law have to save the edges of the field for the poor. So if you were poor, you didn't have to beg. You just came to the edges of the field and you were able to, it's called gleaning. They were able to eat the fruit, or in this case, the wheat, whatever was on the edge of the field. So one day, Naomi and Ruth are, are hungry, and Naomi says, listen, I want you to go into the field, and I want you to glean from the field. Get us some food. So she goes to the field, and she's gleaning from the field, and, and she goes, and she said, and by the way, only glean from the field of Boaz, because Boaz is one of my kinsmen, one part of my family. And if anyone says anything to you, why are you gleaning here? Just tell them that I told you, that I'm a kinsman of Boaz, and it will be all okay. So she's in the field, and she's gleaning. If you haven't read the story, it's really a beautiful love story. And she's in the field gleaning, and one day, and Boaz, who's like the Bill Gates of his time, he's rich, he's good-looking, he's famous. And he happens to be riding by, and he sees Ruth in the field. And he's like, whoa, who would that be? Like, who is that? And, and one, of the, one of his servants says, Oh, that's Ruth. She's actually a widow. And you're, you're actually to, she's actually Naomi's daughter-in-law. And that's your kinsperson. She's part of your family. He said, Well, I like her. And the story goes on. And they, they become friends. And he lets her glean from the inside of the field. And... He gives her food, and he gives her stuff. And one day, Naomi says to, to Ruth, I want you to go down to Boaz when he's sleeping. I want you to lay at his feet. I want you to wash his feet. And when he wakes up, I want you to say, would you cover us? In other words, would you, would you take care of us and take us out of this slavery? That we are enslaved to this landowner. Boaz wakes up. He's been drinking a little too much. <laughs> kind of like Noah. <laughs> he wakes up and he sees this beautiful woman laying at his feet. And he's like, well, uh, who are you? She's like, I'm Ruth, remember? Oh, he's like, yeah, I remember you. And she begins to talk to him and says to him, would you cover us? Well, the short story is, he's like, baby, 
Baby, I'm yours. Baby, I'm yours. I'll be yours. He says, well, I cover you, baby. I, I like you. I will not only buy you back, I will marry you. So he, through the story, there's much more to the story, but he ends up redeeming from the landowner. He, he pays the price and he redeems Naomi and Ruth from the landowner. And here's, and here's how that, the story ends in verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to his son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. And may he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer of old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons. And she has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap. And he and became his nurse. And the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, A son shall be born to a son has been born to Naomi so they named him Odom and he became the father of Jesse the father of David the great great grandfather of Jesus Christ now you just need to think about this for a minute the roots of Jesus Christ do you understand that in the book of revelation says last chapter of the book of revelation said i am Jesus Christ the son of David who sits on the throne of David forever and forever you know that Jesus doesn't even sit on his own throne? He sits on the throne of David. You know who gave birth to David? You know that, that Odom was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, who became the great-great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. And do you know how Odom was born? He was born out of covenant. Because a woman... Ruth said to Naomi, I'm with you. I don't care about my future. I don't care about money. I don't care about my destiny. I don't care about being famous. I just care about you. And a woman who could do nothing for her said, no, no, you leave. And she said, I don't want to leave. I don't want want a life outside of you. I only want you. And out of that covenant, came the man who would be called a man after God's heart and who would begin the 40, 40 years of the 80 years of Israel's golden years. But how was it born? It wasn't born out of self-promotion. It was born out of covenant. I am. You know, we have an instant gratification culture. You know, we go drive into, you know, to Burger King, and they don't serve you from the window in three minutes. You're like, they call this fast food? (laughs) This is the, the young people enjoy this. You probably didn't know this. Do you know that when you used to run out of money, you couldn't buy things? No, I know. It's a long time ago. I'm just telling you about history. It used to be, if you didn't buy something, you actually, if you didn't have money, you actually couldn't buy stuff. 
Yeah, I understand. Now you're like, oh, no problem, you know, put it on the MasterCard. You know, Jesus will pay for it. We must still have money because we have a limit. We haven't hit our limit yet on our nine cards. And now we have ways to not pay the bill. Like, you can, you know, we, we can help you with your credit. Which means you can go offer just a little bit for all of you charged up. And, and I'm saying, we are like, I remember when I was young and my grandmother would cook for us. And you're like, hey, I'm hungry. How long is it going to be? Two hours. What are we having? Chicken. I don't want chicken. Well, then you'll be 24 hours because tomorrow we're having stew. <laughs> Dude, I wasn't like, well, <laughs> well, I need it in an hour. <laughs> you know, you, you might want to go take a hot shower or, or, you know, take a run or something, you know. It's like, you know, fast food was, you know, how quickly it disappeared. <laughs> not the frequency in which it was cooked I, I, I'm simply addressing a mindset like you may not think these are related but they're directly related I want it now I need it now you know I, I want to have sex now I want to have it now I, I want to have I, this is like I want it now I, I'm hungry for it now and it's like okay that's good but you understand what you're sabotaging when you think like that? Because you come into the kingdom and you think that it's now. And then we have a culture of miracles. And so we sort of validate this instant gratification culture. And then somebody gets a miracle and they're like, oh, my knee, you know, oh, I prayed for it. I instantly got healed. Yeah, but they didn't tell you that they've been prayed for 150 times over the last 15 years. It God takes a long time to act suddenly sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like you didn't hear the backstory, and, and we don't realize like like the kingdom is about perseverance. It's about it, it, it's like you know it's Luke eighteen like the wicked judge and the widow and the widow kept going back and the kingdom of God's like this. You keep going back. You you hang on. You pursue. You stay with it. You work it out. You, you have a bad relationship, you work through it, you forgive. How many times? Seventy? Seven times? No, seventy. No, seven times seventy. No. How many times is that? Like, it's forever. <laughs> you just keep working it out. Well, how many times do I have to forgive? How many times are you offended? One more time than you're offended. <laughs> how many times do I have to get up? How many times did you fall down? One more time than you fell down. It'll work. How long do I have to pray? Till someone answers. These are not logical questions. They're log- they seem logical to the 21st century Christian, but they're not logical to the, the 19th century Christian. How long do I have to pray? Did you get an answer? No, keep praying then. How long do I have to work this out in my marriage? Is it worked out? No, then you, you still have more work to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are not hard. I mean, it seems like, like, okay, there's going to be some kind of magic pill. Can you pray for me? I know what you, if you pray for me, my husband will know I'm right. <laughs> so it's a miracle. We're in a miracle culture. Like, you're just going to pray for me and, you know, do that thing. You know, you got to do it this way. <laughs> and people even tell you how you're supposed to pray. You pray for everybody for something in a congregation. No, no, that never works. 
Seriously, no, you can't get prayed. No, that isn't going to help back there. I'm back there. They come up and ask for prayer after you prayed for everybody. Okay, can you pray for me? I prayed for you. What For what? Da-da-da. That's what I prayed for. I know, but you need to pray for me. Because it kind of got sucked off by all the other drips. The other drips in the room sucked off the prayer. You prayed it for me. I need you to touch me. If you touch me, I will be okay. And they weren't drips, they were drops. All the other drops sucked off the anointing when you, you prayed for us, but the other drops, they sucked off the anointing and didn't get in the pond. And you know, the, we're, we're laughing because we all, we've all done it, and there's some truth to it, the fact that there is something about somebody laying hands on you, and there's just, you know, but how many understand? It's not the magic pill. I mean, the magic pill is keep going, work it out. Stay together. Work through it when it's hard. You know, suffer with those who suffer. You know, it's like this is what we were born to do. This is it. This is why we don't have great relationships and why we why we go from place to place. It's like you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Now the grass is greener on the side you water. If the grass is greener on your neighbor's side, when you buy the house, it'll be as brown as your house in six months. You obviously do not take care of your lawn. You will have to ask your neighbor to stay in his house and take care of the lawn while you live there because you don't know how to cultivate your own field. Selah. First Samuel 18, why don't you turn there and see if it could be nicer. <laughs> David has just come back from slaying Goliath and the big battle they had with the Philistines. It's a really awesome time in the history of, of the Israelites. And you, you probably remember the story as they're coming back, you know, the women are saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. You remember that? Before that, right before that, it's in verse 1, it says this, Now it came about that when he had finished speaking to Saul, speaking of David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Jonathan took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, I don't know if you understand what's really happening here. So Saul is the king. Jonathan is his son. This is, this is, the, this is the beginning of the kingly role in Israel. This is the beginning of the royal the royal lineage of Israel. And if you read the royal lineage, you'll realize that the king's, king's sons took their place. So Jonathan is the rightful, quote, rightful heir of the throne. But you'll remember that David in 1 Samuel 15, three chapters earlier, was anointed by Samuel as king. Only problem is, Israel already has a king, and it's Saul, Jonathan's dad. Are you with me? Jonathan and Saul have no idea that David's been anointed king. 
Otherwise, David would be dead. But instinctively, when Jonathan meets David, there, Jonathan is probably in his early 20s, David in his teens, probably 16, 17. He meets David, and David and, and, and Saul are interacting. And it says, when he heard David speak, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That's a good word. (laughs) The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And he began to do something that I think most people don't know. It It says that he loved David as he loved himself. I'm like, well, that sounds weird. Really? Love your neighbor as you'll love yourself. It's weird that it's weird. People are like, they're homosexuals. No, this is called normal. This is normal. It's nothing about sex in here. It's just that we have mixed sex and love together in our culture. So when someone says, I love you, they're like, oh, someone's trying to do something immoral to me. Like, no, no, they actually love you. God, people can actually love you with want, without wanting to have sex with you. But in our perverted culture, those two things are the same. So when you hear somebody say, he loved them as he loved himself, I'm like, wait a second, you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is called normal. What we live is abnormal. And it says that when Jonathan heard David speaking to Saul... It says his soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And he immediately does something that's so amazing. He takes off his robe. Now, he isn't taking off like his Nike coat. I, I, I want you to understand. Like, he's not like, hey, here's my Nike coat. Man, it's my favorite, you know, my 49er jacket. No, no, this is his robe. This is his kingly robe, his princely robe. This is what signifies that he's next in line. He just took it off and he gave it to David. He just said in front of all the kinsmen, in in front of all of the countrymen, in front of all the king's people, in front of all the other princes, David, you can have my place. You're the king instead of me. In front of his father, I just gave the kingship to David, dad. And then it says he did this. Said he gave him his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. His armor, he took off his armor. This armor protected his heart. He said to David, I'm not going to protect my heart from you. You're my friend. My soul's knit to you. What's, I'm, I'm not going to... There's not going to be any distance between me and you. And he gave David his sword. He refused to protect himself. His bow. Jonathan gave him responsibility for the... Jonathan gave David responsibility for his own soul. I don't know if you got that. Like Jonathan said, here's my bow. You protect me. I have nothing to protect me anymore. I trust you to protect me. Last thing, he gave him his belt. And actually, the word belt actually means to gird. It means it was preparation for work and for war. He said to David, I will not work against you. I will not war against you. 
I am made. This is this is covenant. Like this is friendship. This is covenant. And this is also marriage. This is about a lot of people come into marriage and don't do this. They come into marriage and they marry, but they never merge. And, and they have a sexual relationship, but they never connect. And Jonathan's like, how's my armor? You, you, how many of you understand when you come into covenant? Now, I, I'm using marriage. I'm not talking about the sexual side of marriage right now. Uh, is when you come into covenant, you take off your armor. You're like, I'm fully exposed. There's no secrets. I have people come to me a lot and they'll say, you know, I, I, and they're telling me stuff. And I say, have you talked to your husband about that? No, you know, I just, he wouldn't understand. Well, no, 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 no. Wait a second. You want a covenant. You make him understand. You make her understand. You don't have secrets. Yeah, I give, I give my sons the money, but some money, you know, every month, but I don't let my husband know. I let, give money, I don't let my wife know. What? Whoa, 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 wait a second. No, nothing hidden. No secrets. As soon as you have one secret, you give yourself permission to have two lives. No, no, nothing hidden. You take the armor off. No, this is covenant. Nothing hidden. We'll have this little secret. Little secrets turn into big secrets. Drops turn into pawns. Second Samuel one one twenty six. It's Jonathan has died in battle. This is the end of Jonathan's life is over, and David hears it from an enemy actually, and this is his this is his, one of his first lines when he hears it. I'm distressed over you, my brother Jonathan, for you are very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. Love, not sex. This is, by the way. When men fight together in the trenches, this is common. Like this would be, we're like, oh, that's weird. Oh, ask anybody who's been in Vietnam with their friends or in a battle or Iraq or Afghanistan with brothers. They come back, and I guarantee you, they may not know how to verbalize it, but this is part of the problem. They come back, they, they were there in battle, and they bonded, and they found a place with another person they've never known before. And part, I, I believe that part of PSDs is, is not just... You know, nightmares and all that. Of course it is. But part of it is, how do I bond with someone like that ever again? What happens when we're in the trenches together and we're covering each other and we're living for each other and we're dying for each other and we've given our life for each other and we risk our lives for each other is we bond. And consequently, at the end of our life, you can say, my love for you was greater than a love for a woman. Yes, I bond with you in, in battle. I bond it with you in, in vision. We stood together. Your father tried to kill me, and you stood, you stood against him. You stood for me. Of course there's a bond. But this is about covenant. And you don't know this when you go to church. You only know it when you become the church. People come to church, and they, they don't feel loved. It's like, you want to be loved. You've got to love. You've got to lay down your life. You've got to come not just to give. You got, I mean, to receive, you have to come to give. You have to come... With your armor off, you have to come to connect. Well, I might be hurt. No, you will be hurt. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The fact that you can be hurt means you don't have armor on. Some people get wounded once and they wear their armor from now on. I'm like, no, no. Listen, God's bigger than your wounds. In fact, in fact, in fact, the Psalm says he wounds us and then he heals us. It's kind of the story of a spanking. This is going to hurt so good. <laughs> he who spares his son 
who spares the rod hates his son. It, the concept is, it, it, you, when you love someone, sometimes you have to hurt them to help them. You know, I'm not talking about, you understand, just for those that don't know me, I'm not talking about beating someone or women taking beatings or any of this crazy stuff that you could, if it's crazy, it's not what I mean. Okay? Okay, can we just say that? If it's crazy, it's not what I mean. I'm talking about what your grandfather would have heard me say 70 years ago. I'm talking about the fact that stuff happens and we work it out. Well, what do I do if my husband's beating me? Well, let Tarzan stay in the jungle. Telling him it'd be fun to be with, you know? I, I don't advocate anybody beating on somebody. That's ridiculous. I love you. Don't love me as much, please. Some people say crazy. I love my wife. You're beating your wife. You don't love her. Those are words. It's not reality. The reality is the reality is what you do, not what you say. I love my children. You've abandoned them. It's not love. It's some kind of fantasy you're living in. Love looks like something. I'm abusing my family, but I love them. No, you don't. I'm sorry. Somebody needs to give you a reality check. You don't love what you don't do. Words are cheap. You can read them. Roses are red. Dude, that's in a movie. The truth, the love looks like something. Love means that love has to have action. Love looks like something. So, you know, abusing your family and telling them you love them, I'm like, you are teaching your children something that's totally not true. Teaching your children love looks like this. No, it doesn't look like that. Love is faithful, love is kind, love is gentle, love. You know, that's, told, that's in the Bible. But it is true that when you love someone, that you work it out. And that there are hard times. So the other side of that is, you know, it's not always rosy. There are thorns on every rose, and we have to work through that. Years ago, you know, we moved to, as Kathy told you, the pond. And Bill used to call it the center of the universe, Weaverville. And we moved there because we lived in the Bay Area, and I had a nurse breakdown, and it lasted a long time when I was 22 years old, and we were married about two years and just had our first child. And I was having 30 to 50 panic attacks a day, and and we had um, vacation there a couple years before in, in Weaverville up in the Turney Alps. And it seemed like the birds were flying slow and things moved slow. And they didn't, they didn't have a single stoplight in the whole town. We're like, this is our kind of town. No traffic. And so we moved to Weaverville. We actually moved to a little town called Lewiston. which was 900 people, if you can imagine, 900 people. And um, we, we um, started a little shop there, a little repair shop, and... And um, we were going to this little church of 40 people. It was called Calvary Chapel. It was a Pentecostal church. And you knew when the Spirit moved and when it didn't move because we had a Grandma Kale. And when the Spirit was moving, Grandma Kale was, would jump up and she would say, This is a very true story. She would stand up. And thankfully, she stood up most every Sunday, so the Spirit was moving most of the time in our church. 
And Grandma Kale, she had uh, she had three uh, three major themes in her life messages. She she didn't like women who wore makeup. She didn't like short dresses, and she didn't like the movies. So she would rotate those themes in her prophecies. <laughs> I, after about you know six months, I could figure out like okay, we did the theater last week. <laughs> the makeup's coming this week, you know. And she would stand up, and, and she'd, she liked to stand up in the message. That was her favorite time when the pastor was preaching. And then she'd shake. I mean, way before it was popular, she shook. And after she shambad for a while, then she, she would say, The Lord says to you today, Thou shalt not be in the theater when the Lord comes. You never know the day or night when He's coming. And if you if He finds you in the theater, you shall all go to hell. You shall all perish. I shall say to you, not one shall be saved. And she had she had similar theme with the with the short dresses and oh she didn't like women to wear pants either. That was another one. So she had four themes. It was kind of that theme. So we did that for a year. Our church didn't grow a lot. I don't know why. That's <laughs> kind of different when everybody's shaking and falling down. But when there's, you know, when nothing's shaking, nothing should be shaking. You know what I'm saying? And one day we come to church on a Sunday morning. It's about maybe a year after we'd been there. And there was a lot of excitement around the church. And, and, uh, and we got introduced to this hippie. This hippie pastor and his flower child wife. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy's a hipster, man. I need a dad, not a hipster. And I, I can still remember, just I can tell you his first message. And so, you know, he, he gets up and he's introduced. And, you know, Grandma Kale, she's Shambhad already, so we, the spirit's moved. <laughs> it's good because, you know, I know he's going to preach. And I'm thinking, he's not going to want Grandma Kale or Shambhad while he's preaching. He comes up to share, and he opens his Bible, and like, he must have not got the Pentecostal memo that you have to like, you know, be emotional to be powerful. Because he, you know, he he had us turn to the a book and read. We actually read from the Bible, which was a whole new concept for <laughs> the Pentecostal world. We actually used the Bible, and we were, we were reading. We read the Bible, and then he began to teach us. When that hippie pastor started teaching, I had never heard a human utter words like that. I had no idea where this man got such wisdom. And I st- tears were coming down my eyes, and he was just doing what he does. He'd just stand behind a podium and talk. Even Grandma Kale was stunned. I never heard anything like that before. That went on for about two months. This hippie pastor and his flower child wife. Long hair, mustache, sandals. He's trippy. And we got to be friends. And of course, you probably figured out that that man was Bill Johnson. And we got to be really good friends. 
In fact, for the first 12 years, we hung out five, six nights a week. They ended up with two boys and a girl, and we had two girls and a boy, and they all dated, and (laughs) we were going to be part of the royal family. Yupper. And uh, we, we were together 17 years, and we were going. And, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about life. You know, I grew up in a super broken home. Bill's a fifth-generation pastor. Don't you just hate people that just everything goes right for them? <laughs> Seriously, it just makes me want to puke. One day, this is a true story. I'm fast-forwarding. We were in Bethel. This is probably four years ago. Bill's like, if you have you know, family members that aren't Christians, I want you to stand up. And you know, Of course, everybody has family. You know, let's just pray for them. And Bill's like, I can't stand up because I don't have a family member who's not a Christian. <laughs> Shut up, you know? <laughs> Seriously. Is that supposed to make me feel good? So we're together for 17 years, and then Bill you know, went to Bethel, longer story, but Bill went to Bethel, Bill and Benny went to Bethel, the pastor Bethel. And um, you know, we, were, we, we, we didn't see each other much for a year. And then one year, and then the next year, my kids had, um, they ran a, they, were over, they oversaw a YWAM base in Colorado, and they asked Bill to come speak, and Bill said, why don't you come with me? So we went to Colorado to speak at their base. Bill spoke, and I, I ministered. I spoke a little bit and just ministered. And we stayed in this little cottage, this, like, 300-square-foot, two beds, a sink, and a bathroom. That was it, in the woods. And it was snowing. And um, little, little two little twin beds, one this way right here, one this way. This one, the bathroom's right here. Um, and so the first night, we, you know, we're, we're having fun, and it's the renewal time, and it was just really fun. Bill's still amazing, still, still amazing. It was amazing that we ministered to a bunch of the students, and they're on the floor, and it was just fun. You go back to the uh, little cottage that night, little cabin, and, and we go to sleep. We're just exhausted. We've been up early, and, and uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I get up to go to the restroom, and I, walk by, I have to walk by Bill's little twin bed to get to the restroom. And Bill's on his back, and he's saying, Jesus, I love you. Asleep. He's asleep. Completely asleep. In his sleep, he's saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're amazing. Dude, I don't even do that. I'm awake. (laughs) I'm telling you that God's truth, I'm not exaggerating one bit. For five nights, I walked by that bed. And that man is loving on God in his sleep. By the third night, I am wrecked. I haven't been with him in two years. I am wrecked. By the fifth night, I am gone. I say to myself, we have four businesses, 40 employees, three locations, three auto parts stores. And by the fifth night, I'm like, I, I don't care about making money. I'm supposed to be with this man. And I come home. Kathy could tell you I was a mess. She answered the door before she could even get the door all the way open. I started talking. It's not uncommon to me. (laughs) Finally found somebody to pay me to do it. And I'm just like, I'm just in tears. I'm just telling her what happened during a week. And 
And I just tell her, you know, I'm, we're supposed to be with Bill. She's like, well, our business is, I'm like, I don't know. I just know this. I was born to be with Bill. That's what I know. She's like, well, what, what do you think? And I said, well, Bill, you know, we, we, when we landed in San Francisco, waited for a layover flight, Bill said, I'd like to start a school ministry. I'd like you to come and be the leader. I'm like, I have four businesses and 40 employees. And, and he's like, yeah, and I can't pay you. <laughs> Is there anybody else up there? And, you know, my head's like, what? <laughs> my heart's like, you need to do this. And, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever had anything so congru- incongruent, you know, but love's like that. Like, love will take you... You know, your heart will take you places your head just cannot go. And I came home and I began to explain to Kathy, and you know, she knows me really well, and she she knows I I don't fake an encounter with God. I'm like, I need to be with Bill. And of course, she has all the logical questions: What are we going to do? The, we built this house. Our kids grew up in it. We've been here for 19 years. You know, we have businesses. We have. What are we going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I just know this: I was born to be with this man. And without him, I'm not complete, like I'm not complete without you. In a different way, of course. Short story, really a long story, but just make it really short. Two years, a year later, we were there. And it, wasn't, it was very hard. And um, it was the best and worst of times. How many of you have ever said that before? Aren't you glad the best and worst of times happen at the same time? You wouldn't get through the worst of times, right? And on one side, we were just, you know, we were just loving what we were doing. We were, you know, school started with 37 students, and it, by the third year, it had grown to like uh, almost 200, and, and it was like, you know, unheard of. I mean, our dream was to someday have a school of 300, so we're almost there, you know, big dream we had. But we weren't getting along. Bill and I weren't getting along. Like I had never worked, I hadn't worked for someone in 20 years, so having a boss, ah, that was hard. Even though he was super gracious. So by the third year, I was. I was really looking for a way out. I was really like, I love this man. I want to be with him the rest of my life, but I don't want to work here. And there was a church that, um, anyway, I don't want you to know where it was at, but there was a church in California that, that reached out to me and, and started to talk to me about being their senior pastor. And I, um, so, for, so for months I was like, oh, this is my way out. This is going to happen. In a couple more months I'm going to be here and, you know, we'll be under Bill. It'll all be cool. And um, I went in and t- talked to Bill. And I said, hey, this is what's happening. I want you to know straight up front, no secrets. And he, I thought he'd be really happy. I thought he'd be like, whoa, I'm tired of you too. And he looked at me and said, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. I don't, that's, that wouldn't be my desire. I would never want you to leave here. Okay, well, that's interesting. <laughs> About another month or two passed. I'm sorry, the time's probably not exactly right. But, and I, I, one night I had to stream. I, was, I went to bed praying about what to do, and I had to stream. And in the dream, I saw this church, which is about, it, it held about 500 people in the sanctuary, but it was about 200 people. And in the dream, there was like 2,000 people at service. And there was, they set up a, a sound system in the parking lot, and I was preaching behind the podium, and there was, there was, I don't know, there was, I don't know how many, but like 2,000 people at the service. 
packed out everywhere. Young people, old people, everywhere. People, God was moving powerfully. And God said, if you leave here, that's what will happen in that church. I said, that's amazing. In the dream, I said, that's amazing. Then the vision changed, and it was like the Hubble telescope that looks, you know, taking pictures of the, of the earth that, from the outer space. And then the Lord said, but you'll never touch that. You, you'll grow a big church. I'm a drip. You'll grow a big church, but you'll never touch the world. If you leave Bill, you'll never touch the world. And then he said this, and he said, and you can do either one, and I'll bless either, and only you and I will know you failed. It'll be our secret. That's what he said to me. I'll tell you what, I was not a happy guy, as Kathy can tell you. I was not a happy guy. He said, only you and I will know you failed because you were born to be with this man. I sent the disciples out by two, not by one. He has what you need. You have what he needs. You can't do this by yourself. What you build by yourself is a big church. What you do with him is be a catalyst cultural transformation for the world. You decide. I struggled really hard. Three months, four months passed. I wrestled. You heard Jacob wrestle with God. I wrestled with God and lost. Finally, about in the middle of the night, after agonizing, hadn't slept for months, I said, okay, God, I give up. What am I supposed to do? He said, make a covenant to stay with Bill the rest of your life. I said, okay, I'll do that. He said, no, tell him. Oh. (laughs) This is too much like a marriage, you know? A couple more months went by. I agonized over it. Then one night we were driving. We, We drove to... Um, this retreat, five hours, and it was just Bill and I, and Bill was driving. And if you don't talk, Bill doesn't talk. He only knows how to respawn. <laughs> he was a pretty quiet, introverted guy. So I thought, I, so I'm in the car, and I'm thinking, man, if I say anything, it's going to come out. I'm supposed to make a covenant with you. I'm like, I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to talk. <laughs> Total silence for four and a half hours. And we get, we're almost there, like a half an hour winding through the mountains. We're speaking at this men's retreat together. And I'm in the corner, and I'm crying, but it's dark. I'm weeping, but he can't tell. And finally, I'm like, okay, I, this is it. So I turn to Bill, and I say, you know, in tears, I'm supposed to make a covenant with you to stay with you the rest of my life. Da-da-da, <laughs> you know, and he goes, great. That was it, like, that's it, great, you know, like, seriously, like, there's no, like, voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, who I'm well pleased, or, there's no angels, there's no lightning, there's nothing, just great, that was it, great, you know, okay, good to go, I'm thinking it's good, easy for you to say great, you're the boss, then about, I guess a month later, we were in a car, Kathy and I and Benny and Bill, and Bill said, hey, you know that thing you did with me? Oh, vaguely. <laughs> I vaguely remember that. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm with you too. I, I want to spend the rest of my life with you too. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Can I be in charge? 
Like you're Jonathan, I'm like David. You want to give me your rope? this history you know it's like you, you, you everybody's trying to figure out what they're supposed to do and I'm like who are you supposed to be with because before I met Bill I wanted to have a big shop people are like what was your vision for life I want to have a big shop <laughs> no what was your vision no no you heard it I wanted to have a big shop <laughs> lots of mechanics lots of equipment that <laughs> was my vision but you know what happened? When you fall in love with somebody else, and when you get married, it should change you. If you get married, it doesn't change you. You didn't marry. You're cohabiting. No way you can find your other half and be the same. When you make a covenant with someone, it should affect you. It should infect you. It should change your desires. Your passions change. Pretty soon you find yourself being like the person who, Jesus said, when a teacher's, when a pupil is fully learned, he becomes like his teacher. I never wanted to preach till I heard the pippy pastor preach. Well, preaching was just something you did. You just went to church. You went to church. And you, you, you endured till the end to be saved. You didn't want to go. You just went to church. But when the hippie pastor spoke, I'm like, man, I, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I don't know where he gets those words, but I, 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 want, to, I want to change people. That's what I want to do. I never had that idea before I found my people see when you find your people it'll change your desires when we send people off to university and by the way I'm, I'm all for higher education you know I go to the doctor I want to make sure he's got a degree not a supernatural school ministry degree either I had a vision from God I'm supposed to be a doctor okay tell me about your education you know something about anatomy like from school not in a vision from school Totally for higher education. You understand that, right? You heard me. But people don't, they, they don't learn themselves into their destiny. You don't learn yourself. You don't educate someone into their destiny. You find your people, and then you figure out where you belong in the body. You figure out who you're connected to. And you figure out, hey, when I'm around the arm, I feel like a hand. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to be. That what you're, how many of you know hands sticking out of here? Not helpful. Not helpful. Not helpful. You with me? You're, I think I found my people. I, no, I don't think so. Like, I'm really hoping you didn't find your people. How many understand when you get placed in the body where you fit, then you start to be you. And when you're on an island somewhere trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing, you're never going to figure out what you're supposed to be, who you're, what you're supposed to be doing on an island because what you're supposed to be doing has everything to do with who you're supposed to be with. That's a good word right there. And who you're supposed to be with, you know, you can't be like a temporary, temporary plug-in, you know, hand. <laughs> Just a little snap-on. I'm here. I'm not. You know, you, you know, you get the idea. Okay, we'll love you. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I have the students come up in a few minutes. And What time is it? Okay. Is that okay? We're good? Okay. What? Oh, you... you. 
the kids evidently have broke out of the duct tape. You know, duct tape's like, you know what? Duct tape's like miracle glue. You, this, I'll tell you, I'm going to do a class on parenting just with duct tape. You can get it in different colors now, and you can be like wall art. Those kids can be like wall art. <laughs> duct tape their mouths and stick them to the... Some of your mom's like, well, that's a good plan right there. So here's what, I'm going to pray for you all. And then you can do whatever. And then we'll have the students come up and minister to some people. Is that right? Yeah. Prophetically. Is that okay? And then if you get done before we do, you just go. Okay? We're, we're not going to think bad of you. We're going to talk about you after you're gone, though. No, I understand. It's, it's, it's late. And we're missing the playoffs. So, I predict the Warriors are going to, you know. And the Cavs. That's who we want. The Warriors and the Cavs. But there was no woo there. Anyway, okay, so why don't you stand? Let me pray for you all. It's so funny. i got to tell you this quick. I preached this message, not quite this message, but the message about covenant, to our church. This is about three years ago. And I started the message like this to our own congregation. I wanted to be first to tell you, I didn't want you to hear it from someone else. I'm in love with a man. (laughs) Trust me, they paid attention through the whole message. (laughs) And then about halfway through the message, and I said, before you, I I don't know what you're thinking, but I love Jesus, but that's not the man I'm talking about. Then they even listened more. And I gave them punchline until the end of the message. They're like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> don't do that to us. <laughs> Father, I just pray right now. Put your hand on your heart. Lord, I pray that you would create in us, as David said, a clean heart and a renew a right spirit in each of us. Me, us, all of us. And that we would be a covenant people. A people who have the capacity to, to, to walk out relationships. And I pray that you would increase our capacity for relationships. Now, we, we're, in a, we're in a culture that doesn't even honor marriage, doesn't honor lifetime friendships, covenant friendships. Lord, we, we pray that we would be the first of a new generation. That we would be forerunners, trendsetters. We'd be the generation that rises up and says, we need community, we need covenant, we need, we, we began in covenant, we need to stay in covenant, we need to grow together as a one body. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the capacity to love well, to, to work things out honorably, and to stay together and to find our people. I pray that every person in here that has not found their destiny, I pray that you would give them a vision, a picture of their people, that they would find their people and they'd find their place. I thank you for every person here, God. I pray your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to have a chance to